without paying attention. It wasn't intentional. If you please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading out of Luke's gospel. Pastor Dan will be preaching this morning from verses 57 through 66. So I'll read if you'd like to look along, then we'll pray and hear from the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let us pray. Our Father God, we do give you great praise for this creational ordinance that you have set in order that we, your people, would gather on Lord's Day, one day of seven, that we would set aside, that we would come eager for our work to begin, for our week to begin by resting in your presence, by hearing your word, by being zealous for worship, by this particular Lord's Day feasting upon your table that you've provided us. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. As we come before your word, feed us with that which will nourish our faith. Let our sin be confronted. Let repentance prevail. Let us continue to grow by your grace through this very important time. Lord, we're eager to hear from you, to be washed and rinsed and cleansed by your word from you. So, Lord, be with Dan as he comes and he preaches to us your most holy word. Let us sit under it that we have your people are convinced it is without error. Whatever is set forward in your holy text is for our good, and it is inspired. It is directly of you, Lord. So thank you for this word. Thank you for Lord's Day to be gathered to hear this word. And I pray that Dan, Pastor Dan, will be prepared and ready to go as he has put his time before you in this word for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we come towards the end of Luke chapter 1. It's a long haul in Luke chapter 1, 80 verses. You'll see that a lot as we get into Luke, some of these longer passages. But obviously a lot has taken place already. The next two weeks, we really look at the birth of John the Baptist and what surrounds that birth. And so we're going to break it down two ways. This, This morning, we'll look really at the scene of John the Baptist's birth. And then next week, we'll look at the hymn of praise, or I guess more accurately, the prophecy of praise from Zechariah, and when we do that, we'll look at more of the theological and covenantal significance of the arrival of John the Baptist and really of the coming of Jesus Christ. But before we get there this week, I want to look at the birth of John the Baptist and make some observations from the scene that is laid out from us there uh, for us to, to glean 
John the Baptist, I think most people would be familiar with him. He is the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He came to uh, proclaim sin, repentance, and point people to the Lamb of God. And so his whole life, his whole ministry is very much pointing to God, pointing to Christ. He is a very God-centered individual. And this morning I want to look at some of the marks of being God-centered. I feel like that phrase has lost a lot of its weight and a lot of its meaning in that you can go to almost any evangelical church, and I'm somewhere on their website, one of their statements, purpose statements, vision statements is going to talk about being God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, something like that. And um, I think it's intended well. I'm sure if you went on our website, it's on there somewhere. But I think it's become a phrase that has lost a lot of its weight and its impact. What does it actually mean to be God-centered? What does that look like? How does that affect? How does that change your life? If a church is living God-centered, what sort of dynamic way will we see that that's actually taking place? And through the characters, through the individuals, through the cast of the scene that we will see this morning, they put some substance, some life, some actions, some words to what it means to be God-centered. And so we'll look at kind of three different groups or three different uh, members here in, in the scene that unfolds for us. First, we'll see the, the friends and the relatives. And really, the story here of John the Baptist's birth revolves around the friends and the relatives of their words, of their actions, their reactions, their question to close our text here of John the Baptist. And then we'll look, secondly, at, we'll see Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we'll see their God-centered reaction here. And then finally, we'll just take a moment and look at John the Baptist himself. Before we get to the text, I just want to get everyone on the same page to catch us up with the scene of where we are. Adam, Pastor Adam has, has made the point a couple times that we keep in mind the humanness, the humanity of this narrative of Mary, of Elizabeth, of the birth of John the Baptist, of the birth of Jesus. We're probably familiar with the story, the Christmas story, and we tend to box these Bible stories as these are Bible characters and forget that they're very much like you and like me. We take the human aspect out of it. And when you start thinking of... Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and all the players here in the unfolding of these births in Luke 1 and Luke 2, and you start to think that they could be in our context, we could be in their context, and they would experience the full range of emotions, deal with the same experiences that you face. Those experiences of, of frustration, those experiences of insecurity, those mountain points where you feel like your faith is strong and bold and you're walking near to God, and then those valleys where your faith is weak and you really don't even care. And then those insecurities that we all have and we all don't like about ourselves, but yet we know they exist there and they show themselves in different ways. Zachariah, Elizabeth, Mary, every character, that's them. That's them. That is the same experience and emotional human reality that is theirs, just like it would be ours. So we look at our story now and we back up nine months. Nine months ago, Elizabeth 
is an older lady. Zachariah is an old man. I think it's funny, even in Scripture, how like, they're careful about calling the woman old. You see how Zachariah, when he explains it, he questions God. He says, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. <laughs> you know, it, that sounds very positive. You know, she's not a beginner. She's not intermediate. She's advanced. And so Zachariah carefully, so I'll follow suit. We have an old man and a lady advanced in years here. And so here they are in, in the autumn of their life. He has been a faithful priest in kind of an isolated area for his life, and he has lived it out serving the Lord and entering into uh, the temple a couple times a year and performing those tasks that were laid upon him as a priest. You have Elizabeth, the autumn of her life, and one of the great disappointments and frustrations of her life is that she has been without a child, something that she desired. And the insecurities and the disappointments, and yet now they look towards the end of their life, the autumn of their life, living it out together. And so this is them. And then Gabriel visits Zechariah, and everything is flipped on its head as he comes and says, your wife is going to conceive, and you'll have a child. His name will be John. He explains it. And I can have some sympathy with Zechariah that his response isn't, robust with faith and belief and obedience like it should be. I mean, he's a priest. He, he knows these prophecies of old. But as Adam pointed out, that 400 years of silence, and now God's speaking, and he doesn't really know what to do with it, and he questions. And, and from that point on, as discipline in his life, he becomes mute, he becomes deaf, as the text would show us. Well, somehow he communicates with Elizabeth what is going to take place. And Sure enough, Elizabeth conceives and is with child. The text tells us she isolates herself. And now imagine the flood of emotions and the reality of this setting in, of this older lady unable to have a child her whole life, well beyond the years when it should be possible for her. And now she's with child and her husband unable to talk to her, to hear her as they communicate, try to communicate about it. And now she's about six months through her pregnancy, and here comes a young relative, 13-year-old girl shows up at her door, and it's Mary. And you see the reaction of Jonathan within the womb, John within the womb of Elizabeth, as Jesus within the womb of Mary comes, and John leaps at the presence of the Lord and Elizabeth's confession that how could she stand here in the presence of her Lord and the one who is carrying her Lord, and then Mary, as you can just imagine the conversation goes, explains again the angel that visited her, and that she's a virgin, and that the Lord is miraculously placing this child in her womb. And the text tells us that Mary remained there with Elizabeth for the next three months, probably helping to care for Elizabeth in the final weeks of her pregnancy. And just imagine the discussion that took place about Jesus and John and the frustration of Zechariah not being able to express a word about it. And so now we come to our text, and this is how it's been laid out for us. So we come to our text, and John, I keep wanting to say Jonathan. It's because I'm looking at Jonathan Worth while I'm saying it. John is born. There's joy and rejoicing at the birth of a child under normal circumstances. We've experienced a lot of that in the church just over the last few weeks, and we'll continue 
uh, to do so with several of the mothers. And, and there is joy and excitement at the birth of a child. But now under these circumstances, the joy and the excitement and the atmosphere, everything has been raised. The level of excitement has been raised. More than likely, most commentators suggest most of the friends and relatives would have been unaware that Elizabeth was with child. She has stayed isolated, the text tells us. Obviously, Zachariah hasn't been doing a lot of talking about it. And so it's remained fairly silent. And now word is coming about that she's had this child. And so words start creeping, the friends and the relatives start hearing the news. And so you read right off the bat here, verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. First, we see this joy that they have is already a partial fulfillment of what we saw in John, earlier in, John, or earlier in Luke chapter 1 where God promised that at the birth of John the Baptist, many would be filled with great joy. So we already see a partial fulfillment of it. But I think we can learn from their joy, learn from their rejoicing. Look how the text says it. The neighbors and the relatives heard that the Lord has shown great mercy to her. You see where their rejoicing and their joy is aimed is in the merciful providence of God. In his mercy, in his kindness, in his providence. It looks beyond the gift to the giver of that gift. And that is where their rejoicing is rooted deeply. It is a God centered rejoicing because it recognizes the merciful providence of God in this gift that has come. Listen to a couple of these texts James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? And so we recognize every gift, everything that is given to us, every good blessing that we have in our lives is from the hand of God. And we see that that isn't just given to us on its own, but it's given to us in and through and with Jesus Christ. And so the rejoicing is in the providence of God. And you see the distinction. Maybe at first it feels like, well, what's the difference? God gives us a blessing. We rejoice in that blessing. I mean, we're thankful God gave it to us. But the difference really finds its point when we think of the things we ask for, the things we request, the blessings that God brings into our life. What happens when the answer to our prayer is a little different than what we ask for? Or that job that you asked for and you were so excited and joyful in at first, when you know the fun of that job starts to wear off and then it becomes monotonous and then you don't like it at all? Is your joy now completely gone because it rested solely in that job that you got? Or it rested completely in that person, that, that new girlfriend, that new boyfriend, that, that relationship that gave meaning and fulfillment. And now, you know, they're just not the person you thought. That relationship is going downhill. And, or when that child finally comes and you're excited about that providence and then it's born with some major mental or physical handicap and disorder... Where's your rejoicing then? 
And this is the distinction, is that they rejoice at the merciful and the kind providence of God, which here has shown itself to be beautiful, but often, as we see in Scripture, comes in a heavy and difficult way. Because here's the promise that we saw in Romans chapter 8. We know that the gifts come from God. We see that they come in and through Jesus Christ, and He's promised that He will work everything for our good. But it's our ultimate good that He is aiming for, and that is in that passage that we are more than conquerors, that we persevere until the end. And even in that text in Romans 8, we see that some of that providence from God is heavy. It talks about sick and persecution and famine and poorness and all that is there. A God-centered rejoicing looks to the giver of the gift and rejoices in the merciful providence of God, even if it doesn't make all that much sense to us, it feels heavy and difficult, even when the shine and the excitement of it initially wears off, our joy remains steadfast. Even though it's confusing and we might not know how this is working to our good, we rejoice in the providence of God. This is God-centered rejoicing that isn't light and cheap and airy. And when everything's going good, we're happy and high-fiving. And when something devastating hits, we all just go a million directions because we we got no rooted joy. we got no rooted foundation. So their rejoicing is rooted in the providence of God. Then it goes on. They, show, they rejoiced that the Lord had shown mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. God-centered rejoicing is able to rejoice at the blessings that others receive, the kind providence of God in others' lives. We've said often, we strive to be a church that rejoices with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Often the rejoicing with those who rejoice is harder than the weeping with those who weep. I think if you look at Facebook, I always preach against Facebook, just so you know, but if you look at Facebook, it's a real revealer of this. If I were to go on this afternoon and I put on there about like how difficult and hard my life is, I'd get like 100, tech, or 100 replies about, hang in there, I feel you, I'm praying for you, all this stuff. Everyone loves the good story. If I get on there, though, and I'm like... Hey, I ran eight miles today, halfway to my goal, getting ready for my marathon. My job is going great. It's like dead silence underneath that. <laughs> no one wants to be happy for you that, hey, you've kept your New Year's resolutions. I haven't. You know, there isn't a ton of, of joy. Adam and I joke each other a lot. We worked framing for a guy um, in Virginia Beach. His name was Denny, who was our foreman. And whenever you had any good news to tell him, his response was always, that must be nice. <laughs> like, the most condescending way. So we were in school as well. So, you know, we'd sometimes have to leave work a little early to go to our class. And he'd be like, oh, that must be nice. That must be nice. And so it was, you know, obviously not happy for us. And sometimes that translates into the community of believers, that we're ready to weep with those who weep, but, you know, all four of us have been praying for a new job. Two of you got it. You know, it's hard to go all the way and be real excited for that. I think one that is very difficult and heavy that we need to be sensitive about is the idea of children. 
especially in our context where children are being born every which way, it seems like. And you don't know the heavy hand of providence for those who desire that. And that hasn't been a reality for them. And God-centered rejoicing, one, looks to the providence of God and rejoices in that. So that even when the gift fades or you don't get what you were hoping for, your rejoicing remains. And it can look at the kind providence in the life of someone else and can genuinely rejoice with them and for them for what God is doing in our lives and not jealously just wish it was for you. So then it continues on here. The narrative continues. The scene continues to unfold. John's been born. He's been around for about a week now, and all the neighbors and friends are starting to come for the circumcision that John is about to experience. When he will go through that, receive the sign of the covenant set apart to be obligated under the law, to experience the blessings of the people of God, to be God's possession. And so the joy of that ceremony. And it seems common practice that in, during this time is when the son would be named. I'm sure they already had a name for him, but it kind of would go public. I don't know that always happened this way, but you do see that pattern in Scripture, that the name is given on the eighth day here. And it's common for friends, for relatives to come. And you can just imagine, that, you know, they've heard about Zachariah not being able to hear or talk. They know Elizabeth. Like, they got to be here for this baby shower. <laughs> you know, and so everyone is coming in in this momentous moment as Zachariah is going to circumcise his child. The sign of what that means. And so as they come... Uh, and they, they seem to assume, almost like it's on them, to name this baby. They're going to call him Zechariah. Now, by the time most commentators, you look at the secular time period, during this time of silence from the Old Testament till we get here, the beginning of the New Testament, it seems like it became common practice almost exclusively that in that culture, you would name the son after the father or a close relative of some sort. And then especially in this case, we have Zechariah, a priest, who's desired this child for so long, and now it's here. Of course you're going to call him Zechariah. He's going to be little Zach here. And so everyone is just assuming this and kind of coming in. This is the name that they're going to give him. And so as they come and are suggesting that to Mary, Mary informs them, no, his name will be John. And there's almost a vehemence in, in what she says here. It's like, no way. The name is going to be John. And the people, you need to understand, I mean, this didn't happen. This isn't the way kids were named. And so they're kind of taken back by it. And this is where it gets awkward. You think, okay, they'll drop it, but no, they don't. Which if you've named a kid, maybe you, you can kind of experience this a little bit. You know, like you come up with your two or three names. You let people know, here's what we're thinking about for the baby's name. And you get like a, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> like, like, wow, that is not a rave <laughs> review for that. Sometimes it goes so far that after you've named the baby, and you introduce them, they still give you the, yeah, like, I'm sorry for that kid, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a, a great experience. And it seems to be, you almost have a little of that awkwardness. And so they don't drop it. They don't just take Mary's word for it. They now bring it to Zechariah, or Elizabeth. I probably keep getting those mixed up. I'm talking about Elizabeth, not Mary. 
They don't take Elizabeth's word for it. They, they bring it now to Zechariah. And here's Zechariah, still mute, dumb. They make signs to him to communicate. He takes his tablet, and he writes on there, his name is John. We saw God-centered rejoicing, and now we see God-centered response. A God-centered response to the discipline in Zechariah's life. He, he didn't respond correctly the first time. He experienced the discipline of God. Hebrews 12 tells us that the children of God are going to experience that. And instead of digging in his heels, instead of you know tightening up on his stance, he learned, he repented, he has faith, and he obeys. And you see it, his name is John. He doesn't say, like, we're going to name him John. That's what he's going to... He says, he's already been named. And this is it. His name is John. I think it's good for us to stop and realize, okay, so Zechariah isn't the hero in the first part of the story. But he learned from the discipline and correction of God in his life. And he responded in faith and obedience. I think often in our lives, we've been covering this in Calvin Club, of how God deals with his children through discipline. I think often we fail to recognize the discipline of God in our lives as that parent that he is who who loves and shapes and kindly directs his children. And often God allows for us to experience the consequences of our sin in such a way that it should drive us to repentance, faith, and obedience. You know, you, you run off at the mouth, and it comes back around, and you experience a heavy hand from that. Decisions you make that are unwise, are not prayerfully made, that are, whatever it might be, you start experiencing the consequences. And how quick are we to think, okay, it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. We put the blame anywhere else except learning from a heavy hand of God in discipline. That you experience the consequences from your sin, that you receive that, you repent, you believe, and you obey going forward. I think I'm just challenged with that in my own life, that I don't think we recognize very often the discipline of God in our lives. And instead we think, it's just not fair, it's someone else's fault, they need to get over it, how is this happening, woe is me. Instead of seeing God shaping and correcting hand through the difficult times, through the testing, through the discipline that takes place in our lives. And so he responds correctly here this time when he said, his name is John. So now you remember Zechariah for nine months, mute, deaf, he can see Mary and Elizabeth talking, but he can't hear them. He can't join in with them. All of the, how much that must have been boiling up in his heart and his soul. And now this baby is here, and for a week he hasn't heard it coo or cry, and he hasn't been able to express how happy he is to Elizabeth, and he hasn't been able to tell that baby that he, he loves that baby yet. And finally he writes these words, and the Lord sets his tongue free. His capacities return to him. What's his initial response? Praise to God. It's worship. Look what he says here. 
I'll begin reading in verse 59. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives is called by his name. They made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke, Blessing God. That the reaction, the response of his heart to an answer to prayer is worship. The response of his heart to this blessing is worship. It doesn't turn first to John. It doesn't turn first to Elizabeth. It turns directly to God and responds in worship. Hopefully that is what drives and motivates our worship is as God reveals himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ and we join together and we hear about and we see and once again we see God for who he is and we hear of his works that our hearts respond in worship. That's a God-centered response. Learn from the discipline. Be driven to worship And now we'll go back to the friends and neighbors here for our last point. So in verse 63, he writes that his name is John. In verse 64, immediately his mouth was open, his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. In verse 65, we'll go back to the friends, to the relatives. It says, "And and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? Several things, I think, elicit this response. First, you know, they, the miraculous setting of um, Elizabeth having a child at her age, Zechariah being set free to talk finally. But I think really the naming of this child is what is getting them. This doesn't happen. He should be called Zechariah, but he's called John. John, the Lord has showed us grace. That's what the name means. And I, their minds would have been taken back to naming in the Old Testament of Abraham and some of these others when God divinely appoints a name and he is signifying that apart from human means, something divine, something different is going to happen through this child. I think it's finally starting to sink in with them. It's been 400 years since God has spoken. Several generations for them. They're not even listening for it anymore. They're starting to hear the voice of the Lord in this. God has spoken. He's named this child John. He is communicating something to us. And that's why they say the hand of the Lord is on this child. Who will he be? And then you see God-centered reflection. They take it, they store it up in their hearts, they talk, they consider, they reflect upon what will this be. Same language that we hear in Luke chapter 2 that's probably a little more familiar with Mary where she took those things and pondered them in her heart or treasured them in her heart. Same sort of language idea used here that they hear the word of God, they see the works of God, something is taking place, and they reflect upon it. I just want to make application to us on this, because I feel like the art of reflection is something that is being lost. 
we're such an age of, <clears throat> of quick little sound bites. Of, I mean, you can get online, listen to three minutes of something, and then you're ready to get online and preach about it ten seconds later, like you've become the master. And we have this, you know, it's so quick to get and dispense, and then we move on with life. How many times throughout the Psalms, throughout Scripture, are we told to, to recount the things of the Lord, to remember, to call to mind, to meditate upon the Word, to store them up in our heart, reflection upon God's Word and upon God's works within your life is such a grace. It produces wisdom. It, it, it leads to patience and, and mercifulness and leads, protects from using language in a bad way, of offending, of, of you know, going off on something untrue. When we become more reflective upon God's Word, that we take what we hear and we think about it and we consider it and we mull it over and we, we look at God's work and we reflect, what is He doing in my life to move and to shape me? And we're just more aware of the work of the Spirit taking the Word and moving in our lives. We become reflective and consider what the Lord might be doing in our hearts and our lives. And from that arises a faith that is rooted deep, praise that spews forward. That's what you see again and again in the Psalms. Recounting, remembering. We'll do that in just a moment here with the Lord's table. To reflect, to remember the gospel And so we see in this passage, we see God-centered rejoicing, we see His God-centered response, we see God-centered reflection. And then to close, I just want to look then at John the Baptist. If you really want an R to figure it out, it could be a God-centered role model, but that's sort of stretching it, I think. But John the Baptist is an example for us. Verse 66 ask the question, what then will this child be? And the gospel will go on to unfold for us what this child will be. Indeed, he'll be the forerunner of Christ. In this section, Luke only mentions in one verse any details about John's life. We'll return back a little bit later in Luke and look at some of the, his work and his baptism of repentance. But Luke 1, verse 80, all the way to the end of the chapter, it says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. But we know a little bit about John. He grew up in that isolated area of Judea, and that was only perpetuated further by his choice to live, to dwell in the wilderness area. We come to Mark chapter 1, verse 6, and it gives us a little more visual detail of John the Baptist. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So it's probably around 27 AD when now he has grown strong and he makes his appearance and begins his ministry and he comes out of the wilderness clothed in this way. And he's not being a, a, a trendsetter here as far as, you know, this is he's seen this on someone else. It looks great. This is his... Uh, fashion style. <laughs> I, I got to tell this little story. I went to, we were at a conference a few years ago, and I went to a network of churches. And 
there's all these pastors from this network of churches, and they invited me to come and see, learn what was going on. And so I go in, there's maybe 50 guys, and they're all within like six months of my age. So it's like all pastors who at that time, I think I was 29 or something, who are, you know, don't know what we're doing. We're all 29 of us pastors. Everyone looks exactly the same. I mean, we're all very white. We have on our, you know, boots that are kind of worn out looking, skinny jeans. Obviously, I'm not pulling off the skinny jeans, but skinny jeans, the plaid shirts, the glasses. The, and, I, and so we're in there and we're talking about diversity and all this stuff. And I mean, it's laughable. Then you see such a narrow, obviously, there's a style fashion statement for, like, hipster pastors. And, I mean, I know I'm making fun of myself. I probably fall somewhere in there a little bit. But, you know, and then, of course, they serve, like, the craft beer that somebody brewed in their basement to everyone. I mean, we, we were, like, a joke stereotype in there. That's not what John is doing is, like, I'm going to be the get the look that's going to catch on. But John is making a statement. He comes clothed in that camel hair, camel's hair robe, identifying with the poor, really calling into question, confronting those who have used religion to move themselves up in society and promote themselves at the expense of the poor, at the expense of the needy, at the expense of the widow, at the expense of all who are helpless. And so he comes identifying with the poor. The leather belt is just kind of a, a strap of leather tied around again, you know, the, that bell that wouldn't have been fancy and expensive and putting himself with a higher class of people. His diet of bugs and dessert of, from a beehive would, again, distinguish him from those people who are indulging in excessively making idolatry out of the things of this earth, whether it's food, whatever it might be. So here you see the silhouette of this man clothed this way out in the wilderness. Again, drawing to mind God's rescue of his people out of Egypt and calling them forth out of Egypt into the wilderness, their way of rescue. And then you return to Malachi chapter 4 and you remember the final words of Malachi there in the end of he is going to send, there will become a prophet, Elijah will come. As you see the silhouette of John the Baptist standing there in the wilderness, it has to come to mind for the people, this prophecy of here comes Elijah. And he comes with a simple message, sin and repentance for the remission of those sins. And then behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything about his appearance, everything about his message, everything about him is calling people to account and then pointing them to Jesus. Pointing them, directing them to Jesus. John 3 then gives a story that kind of really solidifies this God-centered role model, this God-centered example, this message, everything about John, his look, his message, his words, he was consumed with this. You remember in John chapter 3, people start coming from everywhere. See John the Baptist receive this baptism and he has all these followers. And now Jesus starts to emerge onto the scene. And some of these followers are starting to go to Jesus. And the people who have been following John the Baptist are concerned about it and bring it up to him. Like, you need to do something. You're losing some of your people. And John responds in John chapter 3, Anything that I have is from the Lord. 
And then he goes on with this example. He says, John chapter 3, verse 27, he goes, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And remember, it's kind of a, a, the example is a bit flipped from our context. To make it make sense in our context, you can think of the wedding planner who has done all of this work for the wedding, all the planning, all the organizing, all the ordering, all the decorating. Now you're all gathered here. The keyboard starts playing the song. Everyone stands up, and all that anybody cares about is the bride. No one cares at all about the wedding planner at that point. The wedding planner's job is to be somewhere out there where no one sees her. Hopefully no one even knows she exists because everything goes smoothly and it's all about the bride, maybe the groom a little bit, but let's be honest, about the bride at that wedding. In this context, it's something similar. They kind of switch it to where back back then it would have been the groom goes away to kind of establish his home, establish his life, how he's going to live and care for his new bride. Meanwhile, his friend is back getting everything ready for this big festivity, this big celebration of the wedding. So he's doing all this work. And then in the text, it says he hears the groom coming back. And he doesn't think, oh man, yeah, of course he shows up now. No, it says he rejoices at it. And when the groom shows up, his joy is complete. Because he must increase and I must decrease. God-centered and that it makes it all about Christ. In your life, in your action, in your ministry, in your communication, you know your heart. Are you maneuvering to make yourself as, look as great and awesome as possible? You want to have the influence. You want as many people to know who you are and that you did this and your influence here. Or is it how do I point people to Christ? How do I paint Christ in a fresh way where people see Him and and worship Him? How do we lead worship in such a way that people are drawn up to heaven to make much of Jesus Christ? And so that at the end, if people aren't talking about me at all and how I did it and they're talking about Christ, then that is perfect. That is successful ministry. That's successful living. And not that you decrease and that you have to like, you know, in false humility, say how awful you are all the time. But that you work and move in such a way that it's Christ that is exalted. That your maneuvering is not for your own promotion, but it's for the honor and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. God-centered living. To be God-centered. We're going to say that. We probably say it 12 times on our website somewhere. But we look at this text and it puts a little meat on it. Rejoicing, responsive, reflection. John the Baptist's life is a demonstration of it. We're going to come to the table now in just a minute. And we are going to do just that. We're going to make much of Christ. We're going to reflect and remember. We're going to proclaim and we're going to participate in the gospel. In this table this morning.
when we remember Romans 8 as we do it, every good gift and every, every gift that you have, you have it because He gave you Jesus Christ. That's the greatest gift. And with Him, He's freely given everything that is necessary for your good and your perseverance. I'm going to invite the worship team. They would come back up to close our time here in the Word and move us in.